A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The New Statesman. I'm Megan Gibson, foreign editor in London. I'm Ida Vok, Europe correspondent in Berlin. It's Thursday, the 13th of April. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Returning from a state visit to China, French President Emmanuel Macron sparked international debate when he told reporters that when it comes to Taiwan, Europe should resist becoming America's followers. But to speak of peace and stability today, obviously, that means we have to speak of war. A war that is being waged by Russia and Ukraine. And you just spoke of that, and if I could just touch on that as well, this is a war that brings an end to decades of peace on the European continent. We discuss how Macron's comments have been received in Europe, the US and Taiwan. And then we discuss Joe Biden's visit to Northern Ireland and Ireland. It's good to see Belfast, a city that's alive with commerce, art and, uh, I would argue, inspiration. The dividends of peace are all around us. We analyze the US's relationship with Ireland and the UK at this moment. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. So on April 8th, on board a flight in China, Emmanuel Macron told Politico and two French media outlets in an interview that Europe must resist following the US's cue when it comes to the issue of Taiwan, the self-governing democratic island that Beijing views as its own and has threatened to take back by force if necessary. Macron also said that Europe needs to avoid getting caught up in crises that are not ours. The comments, unsurprisingly, promptly drew backlash from across Europe and the US. You know, you've written about this incident this week, and you've covered lots of Macron's unwelcome interventions in the past. I was wondering, maybe to start, can you just lay out the context of what Macron actually said in this interview? Macron went on a state visit to China where he met with Chinese President Xi Jinping. He also went with uh, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. One of the focuses of the visit was to try and get China to more forcefully confront or perhaps confront Russia at all on, on Ukraine and perhaps push for a settlement and kind of avoid China delivering weapons to Russia, that sort of thing. In terms of actual commitments by China, they seem to be relatively thin on the ground. But what has really sparked controversy was this interview that Macron gave on his flight home, 
coming back from China in the context of clearly discussions about Taiwan as well as Ukraine that he'd had with Xi Jinping. He told Politico and two French media outlets that Europe should, quote, not get caught up in crises that are not ours regarding Taiwan. He continued, quote, the paradox would be that overcome with panic, we believed we are just America's followers. The question Europeans need to answer, is it in our interest to accelerate a crisis on Taiwan? No. The worst thing would be to think that we Europeans must become followers in this topic and take our cue from the US agenda and the Chinese overreaction. So clearly this is attempting to put a bit of distance between Europe and, or at least calling for a bit of distance between Europe and the US on Taiwan, which is clearly a potential flashpoint in global affairs because as you correctly said, and as, for example, Katie has, has covered at length, China views Taiwan as a kind of renegade province, a part of the legitimate sovereign territory of China, and has not ruled out unifying Taiwan with China by force, which the US, by contrast, has said that it will work to prevent and has committed to defending Taiwan in the event of an attack. So obviously, there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> Why don't we focus to start on what the European response and the context to Macron's comments? I mean, Macron seems to be presenting himself as speaking for all of Europe here when clearly that's not really the case. I think Macron would very much like to speak for all of Europe and really sees himself as the voice of Europe and the voice of a kind of united continent. In reality, it's a bit more complex. I think reaction from what I've seen has been overwhelmingly negative. There are a lot of countries which, quite frankly, view Macron's longstanding ambitions of what he calls strategic autonomy for Europe, which is kind of a Europe more independent of the US, more able to throw its weight around in world affairs, they view that as basically a, an excuse to weaken the alliance with the United States, which member states, for example, in, in Central and Eastern Europe, such as Poland, view as the best guarantor of Europe's security. And we've seen in the past few days since the interview came out, those countries coming out and saying the US is still the best guarantor for Europe's security and we can't let these sort of ambitions of strategic autonomy undermine that. So the argument I made in my piece was that Macron obviously is not speaking for Europe, but he kind of he wants to speak for Europe. And I don't think Europe at the moment is in a position to be able to stand up to the US on anything, really, just because Europe is so dependent on American defense, on essentially America deciding that it cares about what happens in Europe and it cares enough to commit significant amounts of money and intelligence and material to the security of Europe. And obviously, We've had the Ukraine war for the past year, and that's the biggest crisis in European security for a generation. And the contributions of EU member states, of the UK, of other European countries to the defense of Ukraine is significant, but it pales in comparison to the US's contribution. The US has committed military aid that's worth more than twice what European countries have. So that's the EU member states and the UK. And it's probably true to say that more than any other country apart from Ukraine, the US is the reason why the Russians didn't overrun Kiev and why Ukraine is still an independent country. And Macron really makes this argument that Europe needs to stand up to the US, but it doesn't really seem credible when Europe doesn't provide its own defense, when Europe is still essentially freeloading off American defense spending. And, it's, and the extent of that reliance has been rendered so obvious by the Ukraine crisis. 
And I think that's what really angers a lot of people in Europe and in the US when they hear this. They think Macron wants to have his cake and eat it. By speaking for Europe, he's taking responsibility for Europe. And this is a Europe which still is shirking the hard problems, still does not provide for its own security, and yet also wants to bite the hand that feeds it, which still provides its security, which is the Americans. Yeah, I can just imagine how this comes across to Americans and especially American policymakers. Like on the one hand, this is what US politicians have been advocating for ages. They've long wanted Europe to step up their military spending to reach their, at least reach their NATO targets, if not go above and quit being quote unquote, the free riders of global security or Western security. And it's not just Donald Trump who is always banging that drum. Obama said it. When I interviewed Jan Stoltenberg, he told me that JFK, there's a speech where he makes the same point that European allies need to contribute more to their own defense funds. So on the one hand, the substance of what Macron was saying about the need for Europeans to have their own strategy makes sense. But the way he framed it just seems so galling at this particular moment. And we don't even have to imagine how the Americans took it. Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida, who is a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he posted a Twitter video to social media following Macron's speech saying that the US is spending a lot of taxpayer money on a European war. So if Macron speaks for all of Europe and their position now is that they're not going to pick sides between the US and China over Taiwan, then maybe we shouldn't be taking sides either. And I've never thought I'd say this, but I understand why Marco Rubio is coming from. It, the US is spending a lot in Ukraine and a, there's a large segment of the American population that views it as a European war. <laughs> so it's just a bit bewildering that Macron chose this moment to make these points in this way. And that's not even getting into the fact that he made it after just having a very friendly visit with Xi Jinping, who has not condemned the war in Ukraine. What has the response been from any Taiwanese officials? Taiwan isn't usually in the position of issuing harsh diplomatic words, but has there been any response? Taiwanese officials have been, I think, mildly critical of this. The Speaker of Parliament said Merkel's comments were puzzling, and I think that's pretty emblematic of the response in Taiwan, which I think values its alliance with the US and would like Western countries, including European countries, to um, stand up to the principles that they've been advocating for the past year, namely that dictatorships invading neighboring democracy is like a bad thing that should be avoided and if it does happen it should be pushed back against and this is especially something that that Ra's coming from Macron I mean Macron over the past years regularly gone to sort of African countries or forums involving African countries in particular and said this is not a European issue this is a global issue this is a matter of the international order it's a dictatorship attempting to redraw borders by force and it's not that there's an exact parallel in Taiwan but there's a like fairly, fairly similar parallel, and for and Macron is taking a, appears to be taking a much more equivocal line on that. And to go back to your early point, yeah, look, the reality is that unfortunately, European defence still depends on the Americans thinking that what happens here matters to them. And in the very recent past, we've come pretty close to American presidents or American administrations 
saying that they don't care what happens in Europe and, you know, that European security is not worth is not worth basically subsidizing, but with American taxpayer defense money. We've come pretty close during the Cold War and of course most recently with Donald Trump. At the moment there is a president in the White House who cares very deeply about the Transatlantic Alliance and who's obviously committed a lot of money to to the defense of Ukraine and is clearly committed to the NATO alliance with obviously mostly European allies. But there's no saying that the person who wins the next presidential election will be as amenable to European security interests. And it's obviously counterproductive for European defense to go around and be almost baiting the Americans with this and saying, look, we get this is an important issue for you, but we, but it's not an important issue for us and we can't be relied on. Because the Americans, as you said, quite rightly might go around and say, okay, you care very much about these issues, but we don't think it's that important. But the relationship is not equal. If the Americans decide that they don't care about European security, then European security pretty much collapses. Whereas, of course, the Americans do not have the same relationship with their own security. So I think you're right to say that Macron is playing a, is playing a very dangerous game, especially in this role as self-appointed spokesman for Europe, where he really likes to think of himself as speaking on behalf of Europe, the continent as a whole, whereas, of course, he's only the head of state of one country and, and not a very popular one within that, within his own countries. Where does this leave Macron politically? Like, as we've covered before, and as you just mentioned, he's really struggling at home. And now it seems like on the world stage, he has made a massive blunder, which he's getting very little support for what he said. And I feel like he's burned a lot of goodwill with some very important allies. And where does this affect him politically at all? Or is this just another unwelcome intervention? I wouldn't quite characterize this as a blunder. This is actually pretty powerful of the course. This kind of, of act is pretty powerful of the course for Macron. What he loves to do in international relations is he identifies an issue which he doesn't think is being adequately discussed. There isn't an appropriate debate or it's important, but there isn't enough focus on it. And he will, he will, in a very explosive, provocative way throughout these kind of bombshell provocative remarks, which then get a debate going. So for example, he did that with the NATO's brain dead comment, which of course we all remember, I think it was something like 2018, when he got a kind of debate about a European security going. And we've seen over the past year that NATO is very much not brain dead, but this is his way of operating. This is not a kind of offhand comment that he just made by mistake. And now he's, he's rushing to contain the fallout. So Politico had this note at the bottom of their article, they said, we don't usually do this, but the French presidency asked to see our copy before we published it, which is the practice in many continental European countries, but not in generally the Anglo-Saxon press. And they said they did it. This copy went to the Elysee, they approved it, they cut certain things, yada, and then Politico published it. This isn't a mistake. And in terms of where it leaves him... Uh, Bluntly, I think that the more trouble he gets in on the domestic stage, the more you can expect him to intervene in international affairs, because he obviously has a lot more leeway to a lot more freedom, a lot more power on the, on, in foreign affairs than he does domestically because of all his political troubles, which we've covered before on the podcast. And I would not be surprised if he really tries to make his mark as a world statesman in parallel with perhaps his increasing 
difficulties domestically, which I don't think are going because you don't really need a majority in parliament. You don't need anything. You're not constrained by anything to make provocative remarks to Politico, which then get a debate going good or bad. And I would not be surprised if you see more of this over the next few years. All right. And with that, let's, uh, let's move a bit closer to home. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From The New Statesman comes audio long reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. The expensive house that sucked up a lifetime's wages became the savings account, the pension, the inheritance. That wealth is now beginning to dissolve. Featuring writing from our authors, including Will Dunn on the Great Housing Con, Why the Coming Crash Will Rewrite the Economy, Sophie McBain on What's Behind the Surge in Adult ADHD Diagnoses, It's not pure coincidence that ADHD diagnoses have risen alongside the internet's attention economy, a vast infrastructure that has been designed to capture and monetize people's focus. And Karl-Uwe Knausgaard on why the novel still matters. The poet Rainer Maria Rilke once wrote that music could lift him up. Of course, there's nothing remarkable about that. Only he then added, and put me down somewhere else. I recognize that quote so well especially when it comes to literature. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search audio long reads from the New Statesman, wherever you get your podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On Tuesday, US President Joe Biden arrived in Belfast in Northern Ireland for a four-day visit to the island of Ireland. He's come to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and to celebrate his Irish roots. His visit comes at a delicate moment. The Stormont Assembly has been suspended since February last year when the DUP, which is a pro-British political party pulled out of power sharing in opposition to the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is a part of the post-Brexit trading arrangement between the UK and the EU. Okay, Megan, you've been covering this. So can you tell us about Joe Biden's visit? Why has he gone to Northern Ireland and Ireland? What's he done so far? And what is he planning on doing while he's there? So he 
London and Belfast on Tuesday night for a four-day visit that takes in Northern Ireland and Ireland. And ostensibly, he's there to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. But this is also a really personal trip for him. So he spent about 15 hours <laughs> maximum in Belfast when he landed. He briefly met with Rishi Sunak for tea and then a private chat. He gave a speech at Ulster University and spoke briefly with all five of Northern Ireland's party leaders to discuss progress made since the Good Friday Agreement and economic opportunities for the country. But then he was off to the Republic of Ireland where he is slated to visit not one, but two of his ancestral homes, one in Loth and another in Mayo, where he'll meet with the remaining Bluets, who are his ancestors. And while it is a working trip, it's obviously very personal. He has his sister Vivian and his son Hunter along with him. And as I just said, he's actually visiting distant relatives. He's mixing business with pleasure, I guess you could say. A lot is said of Biden's pride in his Irish heritage. How much is that part of his character? And does it have political appeal in the US? Is this visit partly for domestic political purposes? I would say it's a huge part of Biden's character, certainly a huge part of his political persona. He's definitely not the first American politician to make a meal out of his heritage, but I think he's probably one of the loudest Irish-American politicians, definitely since JFK. A lot has been made in the press of his repurposing the James Joyce line saying that when he dies, Ireland will be written on my soul. So he's toured Ireland before as a politician. He has an honorary degree from Trinity College. He's made plenty of off-the-cuff remarks about his Irish heritage, several of which have also led to the belief among many, including DUP politicians, that Biden is anti-unionist and anti-British. So his remark, this is a famous clip of a BBC reporter trying to get a quote from him and Biden responds, BBC, I'm Irish, but before turning away and <laughs> refusing to give him a comment. And the other times in his past when he's spoken you know, about political issues in the US, specifically one time he was speaking about refugees seeking asylum and he brought up the story of his great-grandfather having to flee from Ireland because of, quote, what the Brits were doing there. So this has led to the idea that Biden doesn't actually like the UK because of his Irish Catholic heritage. But I think part of why this is more about playing to the domestic crowd is just really cementing the idea that the US and specifically Biden's party, the Democratic Party, did play a significant role in establishing the Good Friday Agreement. Biden himself was a senator at the time, and he had a seat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he was a big advocate to Bill Clinton of holding hearings on issues that were seen to be blocking peace. And it was actually Biden who invited Jerry Adams to Capitol Hill during his two-week U.S. tour in 1994. So there is, so there is a political aspect to this too, that, that the U.S. has a diplomatic stake in what happens with Northern Ireland. And we're recording this on the first day of the visit where he's in Northern Ireland and later he's going to go to Ireland. How do you think it's gone down so far? His time in Northern Ireland has been 
quick. So as I mentioned, he's, he was estimated to have spent about 15 hours in Belfast before, before leaving for the Republic of Ireland. And most of that time was spent sleeping, presumably, because it was overnight. So I would say it went well, but it's, it, it wasn't hugely surprising. I, w- I was talking to our colleague Anoush on, on the NS podcast about this and how much expectation there was on Biden to actually help ease the stalemate with Stormont. And given the brevity of his time, it's quite apparent that there wasn't much expectation that, that he would have a lot to do with that. Biden himself was clear to state to party leaders and to the press that he saw his role as being there to listen. And that was his primary purpose. And I suppose more broadly, how would you characterize the state of of the UK's relationship with the US? We've had reports this week that the UK is trying to push the US for some kind of free trade agreement, which is maybe the one of the most politically salient advantages of Brexit, which pro-Brexit politicians would like to tout, although of course it's been very elusive so far. And in addition to that, what about the US's relationship with Ireland? I think... When it comes to the US-UK relationship, I just think this is just the perennial question. (laughs) It's such a constant source of anxiety for the UK, even pre-Brexit. I feel that was just, it was something that was quite, quite an obsessive focus for a lot of people in the UK. But I would say that I think today the US-UK relationship is, is, Good. It's the same as it's been for years now. I do think, yes, there is a lot of anxiety on the UK side about the trade agreement and what can be done to speed that process up. But I think across most major areas, the UK and the US are aligned and see cooperation with one another as in being in both their interests. That said, the US's relationship with Ireland is also good, but it's a completely different kind of relationship. I would say it's one that's more rooted in the past and their shared ancestral ties. That sure, there's a lot of more stability and strength to their trade, but that's because Ireland is still part of the EU. But in other areas, when it comes to security and defense, for instance, the US is much more in line with the UK. Ireland isn't a NATO member. It's not on the UN Security Council. It's not part of AUKUS. So the US and the UK really do have a lot of alignment in that regard. And I think they're a much more future-focused relationship than perhaps Ireland and the US is, no matter how warm it may be. All right. I'm sure we'll have opportunity to come back to both of these topics. But for now, that's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday when I'll be interviewing the Guardian journalist Piotr Sauer about his former colleague Evan Gershkovitz, who has been detained in Russia. If you're a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a great review. It really does help. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.